Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Save the Children has been providing essential services and support to Palestinian children impacted by the ongoing conflict since 1953 and has had a permanent presence in the occupied Palestinian territory since 1973. In the last weeks, Save the Children's first supplies entered Gaza from Egypt, including medical kits, consumables and water. While every piece of aid reaching families in Gaza matters, the current rate of delivery is nowhere near enough. Please support Save the Children Gaza campaign at savethechildren.org and click on Emergencies link. Your donation will support Save the Children's urgent humanitarian relief efforts in Gaza. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Matthew Bell to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Matthew is Global Climate Change and Sustainability Services Leader at EY, the professional services company, where he leads a team of 2,400 professionals. Matt has a background in government, climate and energy policy and science and has 20 years experience supporting organisational transformation towards a more sustainable path, working across the public and private sectors. So thank you very much, Matthew, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thanks, Vogel. Great to be here. Great. So maybe before we begin, if you can just tell us a little bit about what you do, your role at EY, and maybe also a little bit about uh, EY itself and range of services you provide there, Matthew. Sure. So uh, I'm Matthew Bell. I am EY's global leader of climate change and sustainability services, uh, which apart from being a mouthful, is the uh, is the technical team who are, you know, uh, 3,400 people globally with predominantly backgrounds in engineering or science um, who help deliver uh, on our clients' sustainability ambitions across a range of services. So EY, for those that don't know, is a one of the large professional service organizations with a an accounting um, and audit, a tax uh, strategy and transaction and consulting business. Great, great. And so uh, in terms of the kinds of services that you'd provide uh, kind of under the, I suppose, climate environmental rubric, what, what might that entail? What kinds of things would you would you do for companies there, Matthew? Sure. But at a high level, we do two main things. Um, we help organizations uh, with advisory services. And the other side is we provide independent third-party assurance to them. So effectively, we are either supporting organizations uh, across a range of disciplines, whether that's climate change, sustainability disclosures and reporting, uh, environment, health and safety, human rights, social impact, or we are uh, checking to ensure that the disclosures that an organization has are materially accurate. Right, right. Very good. Very good. Now, um, just to set the scene a little bit also, I'd be interested in getting your sense of, of um, I guess, your take on what's happening in the world right now in terms of climate and environment. And particularly, what worries you the most? You've, you've been involved in this field for, for, for many years. Um, we're seeing some uh, tremendous weather changes. Uh, and I'm just wondering, what is it that worries you most about this particular moment? There's, uh, there's plenty to be worried about. I mean, I think at a high level and not to be too catastrophe driven, but almost every single biospheric marker that we have and we track in the context of how we're doing at a planetary level uh, is in decline and in some cases terminal decline. So we're at a point in time where we are consuming more resources from the world than the world has the ability to regenerate. We are seeing biodiversity loss at a scale that we have never seen. Um, and as you said, Fergal, we are seeing you know climate impacts eventuating today that are breaking records, I mean, almost at a monthly rate. So, so there's definitely plenty to be concerned about. Now, we've also, of course, had 
quite a few decades now, and I, I think probably fairly from the 1980s or so, when organizations really started to get um, engineered more around the context of their corporate social responsibility, you know, now what we term sustainability, um, or in some cases people call ESR, ESG. Sorry, But we've had a few decades now, and despite that, and even despite the last few years where we've seen some of the biggest commitments made by companies around long-term targets and overarching trajectories to reduce their footprint and impact, unfortunately, we're still seeing you know, iterative improvement rather than the sort of transformation that we'll need to see to avoid some of those catastrophic outcomes I touched on. Right, right. And and what role do you see uh, for companies uh, to play here? It's worth bearing in mind the the role, the 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 legal obligation, fiduciary responsibility of companies to to generate uh, profits and to maximise profits, uh, depending how how it's interpreted in different uh, jurisdictions. But what can companies meaningfully do if the bottom line is the bottom line? Well, I mean, firstly, I guess the the top comment of that is, of course, that. Um, organizations or companies are massively responsible for many of the impacts that we're seeing at a global level. And that also means that they have the tools to be able to address most of those issues and risks. So they're fundamentally intrinsically linked to, you know, the biological, environmental and social and economic um, sustainability challenges that we face at a global level. Um, I, I think, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a an old economic view that somehow companies are apart from society rather than a part of it. You know, the the often misquoted Milton Friedman view of the world I don't think holds anymore. And I think it's true also to say that fiduciary duty extends to include the environmental and social risks that companies face because whether that's in the short, medium or long term, they these externalities have a value consequence to the companies. And so actually in some countries, we've seen um, you know, legal precedents set or um, legal opinions drafted by you know, what was QCs, now KCs, that has said that boards have a fiduciary duty to incorporate consideration of things like climate change risk, for example. Um, so it isn't abject from their responsibilities, it's implicit. It seems like that shareholder fiduciary model is pretty dominant still. Would you, would you agree with that? And the decisions made, I guess, in the Delaware Supreme Court are meaningful. And I, I just wonder to what extent companies uh, feel they can make decisions where they trade off uh, inevitably. Not, not all uh, sustainability initiatives, and far from it, will, will be uh, also profit-making, and there will be hard decisions to be made, uh, increase costs, reduce profitability, and so forth. And I'm just wondering, to what extent do you think that that thinking and that legal uh, obligation impacts what companies can meaningfully do here? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, my personal view on this, Vogel, is that it's it's at best, you know, a um, a cognitive dissonance, at worst, a willful ignorance um, to believe that sustainability factors have no impact on uh, an organization's value creation story. Um, and I think, obviously, we're starting to see a case at the moment, certainly at a sub-national political level in some countries, this playing out as a little bit of a left and right polemic around whether or not ESG, as the finance community have termed it, um, or sustainability more broadly, should be considered for the allocation of capital. Um, again, my personal view is, and I'm hopefully held up by the evidence, is that you, you can't remove yourself from it, right? It's, it's fundamental. And I'll take you back to just a really basic principle. If we think about what contributes towards a share value of an organization, if you go back to the 1970s, about 80% or more of a company's value could be attributed to its fixed assets and cash in the bank. Um, and nowadays, that number, if you look at most listed organizations, is closer to 15 to 20%. So it's turned on its head. And now 80 or more percent of a company's value comes from its intangible value. And so if you are not considering the environmental, social and economic um, 
you know, landscape or ecosystem in which these businesses operate, how on earth are you to have any view of the true value of that organization and, and whether or not it's worth investing in, um, you know, putting on hold or removing your funds from? Yeah, yeah, very good. Well, hopefully we'll get to discuss some of the regulatory approaches to ESG and sustainability. How good do you think ESG is generally as a as a concept, as a measure when it comes to climate? Is it a good lens to assess how companies, how serious they are about their climate commitments? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? We, we've probably seen a greater evolution in obligations on disclosure around climate change than almost any other environmental topic. Um, and the evolution of that has been because uh, I think the the stakeholders who want to understand that information have got an increased understanding of the sort of information they need. So for many, they think about this in terms of just the the footprint of the organization organization itself. You know, it's direct and it's indirect footprint. And for sure, that's definitely a part of it. Um, if we are going to have to remove you know, half of all greenhouse gas emissions in the next six, six years, you will want to understand how the companies you invest in, you know, are reducing their own footprint. Fine. That makes sense. But there's a wider piece here around climate change, right? There is a context where we're going to go through the largest economic transformation in our lifetime circle, at least, that's going to be driven by the need to move from a economy underpinned by greenhouse gas emissions to one which is absent of it uh, over you know just a, a short couple of decades. So we have to get to net zero by the mid-century, as everybody calls it, and we need to get into deep negative emissions in the second half of the century. And so this opens up uh, you know a question to investors, which is, if this is a massive transformation, we need to understand how your business's risk management practices, how your strategy setting processes are incorporating that transition. The last thing really, which is hilarious in, in, in many respects that I call it last, because of course uh, it is how will climate change impact the business, right? So how will the actual climate change and are your supply chains fundamentally reliant on water sources that won't be there? Or will they be in um, low-lying regions that are going to be subject to significant rainfall events and therefore landslides and other risks? You know, are you, uh, are you in parts of the world that are going to see sea level rises, which means that, you know, the energy that you rely on will either be intermittent or no longer available? So, there's really the three elements. There's the direct impacts of the organization itself and how they're putting a decarbonization plan together. There's the context of the transition and what that means for the company, whether that's policy, technology, or legal. Um, and then lastly, there's how is the climate actually likely to change and what's that going to mean to your current business operating model? Right. And I guess that's an interesting question. To what degree is the ESG really looking at the, the risks to the company from climate rather than the risks that the, that the company is going to have on, on the climate? And I think for many retail investors, and this has probably been a very controversial topic, um, they're more interested or they're, they're certainly interested uh, in getting good information on what the, the impact the company is having, its environmental impact. But as I, as I understand it, ESG is more focused currently on, on the actual uh, risks to a company of environmental issues. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of parts to this, I guess. The, the first is, what is it that any investor means by ESG and how do they assess it? So, you know, we've been tracking investors now for uh, over a decade. When we started chatting to them 10 years ago, it was a pretty sorry tale. There weren't that many who were embedding ESG into their decision making. Um, but today it's over 98% of um, investors who tell us that they're incorporating ESG. However, they're still not all doing that in a methodical way that is comparable between investors. And so to your point, Fergal, how is this translating in the context of the information that's being made publicly available and how investors are using it? And then whether it's impacting their decision-making processes one way or another. So that that's a little bit opaque um, because obviously there isn't a requirement for transparency, at least from most uh, asset managers in terms of how they're doing that. And, you know, we assess, uh, this year we assessed over 3,000 companies on their climate change disclosures. Um, and the worst performing in terms of their own disclosures are actually the asset managers themselves. So, so it's hard to know. 
how investors are using that information. But we do know, and they tell us that they use it, uh, and they continue to have some problems with the information that they are reviewing, which is, I guess, the second part. And they've got a couple of issues. One is it's quite hard to be able to compare company to company, so on a on a standardized basis, because in many respects we don't have you know universal mandated standards for disclosure yet. Uh, some of those are coming, so maybe we'll see that change. Um, and then the second piece is is materiality. So you know how important is any one climate issue over another? Now. The, the big piece of disclosure change that came out of the Financial Stabilities Board was the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, or the TCFD as it's called. And that, for the first time, did take that kind of double materiality lens that you're talking about. So this sort of looking at the impacts of the organization on the climate, as well as those various climate risks I touched on and how they will impact the company over time. So my hope is, at least, as the TCFD gets built into the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, um, and as these sort of concepts of TCFD get built into disclosure obligations such as those we see in Europe under the CSRD, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, um, and potentially even being built into disclosure requirements that we're, we're likely to see in California, that it'll help with that disconnect between what investors want and need to see and what companies produce. The US has typically or historically relied more on a voluntary approach to ESG disclosures. Now that's changing um, and, and, and organizations like the SEC and so forth are getting more involved. Just wondering, can you talk a little bit, give us an overview of different regulatory approaches? The other question is we talked about the, the degree to which sustainability can be seen as maybe generating profits or growth opportunities, but also the increasing uh, tone of regulation and focus of regulation, which presumably is driving uh, companies to take a uh, environmental and sustainability issues more seriously yeah it's interesting we are we've never been more at a point in time where depending on where you operate you either have a carrot or a stick um we've got as you say fergal you know proliferation of expectations on um disclosure and and other regulatory interventions on, on some of these environmental and social topics um, but in some jurisdictions, that's been quite challenged. Uh, you know, we, we, you touched on the U.S. Uh, they, uh, the proposal to increase disclosures on climate change from the SEC is, my understanding, you know, was the most engaged with proposal that the SEC has ever produced. You know, thousands, thousands upon thousands of responses from various organisations and uh, and bodies giving one of one view, you know, one way or another as to whether or not it was a positive, neutral or negative thing. Um, and, and as a consequence of that, it's clearly been delayed. Now, there's also a political pushback from some quarters that uh, the SEC is, is, is overreaching in requiring organizations to make these sorts of disclosures. So it's a controversial topic in the US. We, we touched on California, um, Gavin Newsom, as part of Climate Week in New York in September, um, committed that he was going to sign into into law the requirement for similar type of disclosures anyway for businesses that operate you know within within California, and it's the fifth largest economy in the world, and so therefore it will have a, a similar impact in the context of disclosures. But but I touched on the carrot and the stick, Fogel, and. Whilst we do have an awful lot of regulatory intervention in Europe, the most profound thing that we have seen in the US has been the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act or the IRA. Um, and so, you know, that's really mobilizing social capital to try and drive the acceleration towards a, a greener economy. Uh, and it, it appears to be working. So, you know, we will see change across Europe and we are already seeing change across Europe and those impacted where they have operations in Europe because of the growing expectations on regulations around sustainability. But similarly, we're also seeing action out of the US um, because of the the opportunity of what may even be a trillion dollars worth of deployed capital to support organizations.
Yeah, it, it's it's very interesting, as you say. And um, have have you been surprised by the way in which ESG has been politicized in America? It's become very, very politicized and very uh, polarized and uh, seems to be impacting capital allocation and certainly uh, generating a lot of uh, heat, heat and noise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, surprised, but also saddened, um, largely because we just don't have time. <laughs> you know, un- unfortunately, we, you know, it's it's a it's a hard truth to admit, isn't it? But we are reliant on the same global resources, and we do need a concerted effort from all countries, frankly, to make sure that they are um, being considerate for our impacts on the environment and and how we impact on society. Um, it's also sad because you know if we look at all of the academic evidence that is starting to mount organizations that manage themselves more sustainably outperform in the marketplace Um, and if we are going through these large transformations driven by these environmental technology you know or geopolitical changes surely you would want to know that organizations are piloting themselves to capitalize on the benefits and avoid the risks um, but yes, it's um, in some ways unsurprising and in others quite surprising. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very interesting indeed. And I'm just wondering also about what your thoughts are on net zero and maybe if you'd be able to give a little bit of a, uh, an overview of how you think companies are doing. Yeah, happy to. Uh, so my first comment is net zero is clearly a global ambition because we all share the same atmosphere. Um, And what the UN has effectively told us uh, through interpretation of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which reviews all of the science, is that we have a a budget for carbon emissions into the atmosphere and that we need to uh, reach net zero in or or around the mid-century and, as I say, go, go into deep sequestration, deep negative emissions in the second half of the century if we have any hope of keeping temperatures to within two degrees centigrade of warming. Um, And very few people, I mean, it's easy to say that, by the way, (laughs) very few people understand there is still uncertainty around that. So even if we make some of those seemingly Sisyphusian, you know, progress, progresses over time, we still have a 50% chance of keeping within two degrees of warming. So, uh, so it's a, it's a real challenge for us to hit net zero. And of course, if I just add that uh, something that's not often noted, it, it can take decades for the impact of decisions made today to actually change the, uh, the, the, the emissions and, and, and indeed the climate. Hundred percent, and certain things are baked in, as you know, Fergal. So, um, you know, the expansion in the seas are going to continue, uh, even if we abate emissions, because warming is baked into the context of um, of sea level rises. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, so <laughs> I mean, doing that alone is a challenge. I guess is my first is my first comment. But but we we hadn't probably predicted that. Over 11,000, almost 12,000 companies over the last two years will have made, you know, commitments to net zero themselves for their own organizations. And, and that's been quite interesting. You know, now again, in the last few months, as companies have moved from uh, aspirational targets to actually considering how they do it, some of them have dialed back some of their early commitments a little bit. Um you know, as they started to realize the enormity of the task of trying to completely decarbonize their business and its operations. Um, but nonetheless, it's a significant movement from the from the corporate sector to demonstrate that they need to, to make those those reductions. It's not without challenge. There's, uh, there's complexity in the methodologies for determining what contribution you should make to reducing your emissions. Uh, there is there are questions at the moment over the integrity of offsets and whether or not they should even be used by organizations. Um, you know, there is a challenge for organizations where their biggest impact is by reducing greenhouse gas emissions outside of their sector because of their business model, you know, like putting in place um, telecommunications infrastructure that means people need to travel less because they can rely on broadband as an example, because 
those companies' emissions continue to go up as they expand their business model, even though they might have a positive effect on the economy. So all of these things are complex and challenging and more detailed than people might imagine. But you say that, but uh, the, the 11,000 companies, but, but do you think they're serious? I mean, are these serious commitments? I mean, I've just looked at some recent statistics, the Corporate Climate Responsibility Monitor. They've been doing a, a few reports. They, they cover 25 of the largest companies and their commitments to uh, carbon emissions and so forth. And they, these are some of the, you know, the leaders in the climate responsibility space. And they found, and this is their words, no, no one is doing anything credible when it comes to net zero. It basically says most companies' climate strategies are marred by ambiguous commitments, offsetting plans that lack credibility and emission scope exclusions. But replicable good practice can be identified from a minority. Yeah, um, and our, our research says the same, Fergal. Are companies even serious about this? You know, it comes to this question of greenwashing, but broader than that, you know, this is 25 of the largest companies. They also looked at, and and this is another question, fossil fuel companies, and they looked at 70 of them. They found not one credible in their net zero efforts. Yeah. It's, it's a significant challenge, right? So, so we assessed the FTSE 100 and, you know, from our, our analysis, we said only 5% had credible pathways to net zero. Um, so yes, an awful lot of the organizations who have made commitments some number of decades into the future haven't yet worked out all of the ways that they would need to change their business in order to get there. But I, I would reflect, though, that some of that is obvious and natural. So, you know, if, you, if you're talking about a business model which is uh, largely reliant on its ability to be able to produce greenhouse gas emissions today, and you've made a commitment to completely, you know, disconnect your business model from greenhouse gas emissions in, let's say, 20 years time, then you're probably not going to have all the answers today. Well, what I think, what I hope we, you know, what we hope we're starting to see, though, is that organizations are understanding what, one, all of the opportunities are at their fingertips today to be able to reduce their emissions, what they would need to invest in, in R&D, in technology, or, you know, working closely with their supply chain or whatever it may be to get the, the, the known unknowns addressed, and then some honesty and transparency on the unknown unknowns. So the things for which there are either no technology solutions today or no reasonable internal mechanism that they have available to them to be able to reduce their emissions for that what we might call the residual element do you think that the that companies that aren't doing this that aren't making progress whether it's due to the the the, the nature of the challenge or maybe to due to more cynical uh, 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 interpretations that they are being punished that they will be punished that they'll be penalized that stakeholders that investors are and will um, take action if they're not if they're not serious about their commitments? I, I think so. I mean, I think a number of stakeholders will start to take action if they believe that, uh, you know, firstly, a company is greenwashing, you know, let alone that there are increasing amounts of legislative intervention on greenwashing nowadays. Um, you know, people will vote with their feet, you know, as it, as it relates to uh, consumers, certainly. They don't believe a company's commitments and that, you know, that doesn't align with their value set. They won't buy goods or services from those companies, um, investors will see increased risk for those companies too, um, either in the form of, you know, inadvertent taxation or, um, you know, again, some of the customer sentiment. So so I think they will. Uh, and as you know, Fergal, what happens when corporations fail to meet an objective on which society relies them to, that's a market failure where governments need to intervene. And so you just inevitably see increased regulatory intervention if, they, if that doesn't happen. So uh, hopefully, yeah, hopefully it gets addressed. Right. It's interesting as well, I suppose, that some of the uh, climate leaders that are, are private companies and some of the companies, some of the public companies, for one reason or another, that have made uh, commitments and and been associated with uh, big climate commitments have had some challenges at the top of the organisations. You think of somewhere maybe like Unilever or Danone. And what do you make of that? Is, is this just a, something that just takes time to play out for people's values to adjust, or, or is there something else going on? Um, I don't know if there is a great deal of differentiation between private and public companies. Um, 
Although if there was to be a difference, you might say it's because private companies are able to mobilize their own capital and they, they aren't reliant, I guess, on uh, investor sentiment and the whims of shareholders. Uh, so they can make decisions more rapidly, potentially. Um, but then you are reliant on the leadership of that private, you know, private company to be motivated to want to do something. Whereas, of course, in public companies, the broad expectation from shareholders globally now is that there should be action for, from from these companies to change. What to you suggests and reveals how committed corporate leaders are to climate, dealing, helping to deal with climate? Um, a genuine action plan and people doing things, Virgil. <laughs> Truthfully, I mean, what we there's a big difference between commitments which are appropriate upfront uh, targets, which then you know allow you to uh, to assess how a company is going to progress over time and some credibility around those commitments, to then demonstrating action to move towards them. And we've kind of moved, I think, from the commitment year last year to hopefully a year of action. So I'm thinking at the end of this year, as we start to see companies creating their public disclosures, we're going to get a real litmus test for how serious these organizations have been. Um, I will give you just a a small data point, though, just to throw a bit of a risk spanner in this. Um, Our company does an assessment of, uh, you know, a large number of CFOs globally. And for this year, I think in June 2023, this year, our survey closed. And uh, the the equal highest amount of spending from CFOs that they expect to put this year is in technology and in ESG programs. But when we ask them the same question around which programs are most likely to get cut if there's, you know, if there continues to be challenging economic conditions, number one most likely to be cut by a long shot was the ESG programs. So, you know, the rubber will hit the road when we get to understand if people have actually put in place an action plan and, and started to put capital behind projects from the commitments they made last year. That's very interesting. Very interesting. And in terms of the commitments that companies can make, what do you look for there? And how important here is is C-suite commitment? Okay. So I think um, as it relates to climate change, the C-suite, it's fundamental that they are brought into this. Um, the, The biggest change that I saw over the last few years has been, you know, when we've started to engage with companies around the TCFD, for example, and suddenly you've needed to have the head of risk, you know, in the room because risk management has to be incorporated into the disclosure. You've had to have the head of strategy because uh, strategy or the impacts to your current corporate strategy needs to be included in the disclosure. Your sustainability practitioners are obviously there because they are the people who carry out the analysis or translate the environmental risk. Um, But finance are also there too, because the FD bit, the financial disclosure element, is fundamental ultimately to, uh, to how companies need to report. And that was the most profound period of time in all of my time in, in climate change, and I've been working in the space for over 20 years, because all of a sudden you had these functional leaders within within organizations, you know, many of whom sit at that C-suite level, as you say, understanding for the first time the genuine impact of climate change to their own part of the business. You know, oh, this is a genuine risk. Oh, this has real financial uh, risks to us uh, and potential financial opportunities. You know, or, oh, this fundamentally changes the uh, the overarching strategy that we have as an organization. So, so C-suite buy-in is, is really important. Um, and, and I would say, you know, number one step is understanding where your organization sits and some scenario planning around what could go wrong and what could go right. Right, right. EY, like uh, many of the large advisory and accounting firms, play a role in tax minimization. And I'm just wondering how you think about that or reconcile that work with the global need for resources to combat climate change, given that tax revenues, I guess, are a primary source of for, for, for many governments to deal with climate. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting position generally for us. So 
as you say, Fergal, we, we are a very large professional services firm that provides, you know, accounting advice, independent audit, tax advice, as well as helping organizations with transactions. Um, and we need to be really mindful of how the work that we provide um, impacts positively or negatively on society. Um, I think there's been a real realization over the last, um, you know, half to decade that actually tax policies, um, you know, established at a national level can have real and meaningful uh, repercussions to society. Um, we're in an interesting position, though. Clearly, as a provider, we have to operate within a legal framework. Um, but that doesn't mean that we need to admonish our responsibility around the ethics associated with any of the work that we do. So it's it's an evolving field for us, one that we are really engaged in at the most senior levels to make sure we're doing the right thing. Um, but, you know, I think it's not a... It's not a case closed, everything's done. It continues to be a watching brief and we need to keep testing ourselves as to whether or not uh, the policies that are established at a national level are reasonable and the advice that we provide around those is uh, is ethically and morally responsible. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. What time frame should we be thinking about expecting to see meaningful uh, sustainability reporting standards and where are we on that journey, Matthew? Yeah, so... Europe is definitely taking the lead on this. Um, you know, we're going to have the obligation for companies next year, a large number of the biggest companies across Europe uh, producing disclosures under something called the CSRD. Um, and, and they are super comprehensive. So they establish standards against a number of what they call ESRSs, which are, you know, topic areas that companies will need to understand how they impact on those topics, how those topics impact on their financial performance uh, and disclose equivalent, you know, appropriately. At an international level, we haven't had uh, a, a unified methodology. We've had you know, standards like the Global Reporting Initiative, the most utilized global standard on sustainability disclosures. But I think, you know, the the IFRS, the international body, is, you know, responsible for accounting standards that have moved into the sustainability space in recent years and under the ISSB produced two standards um, this year. Uh, one on general sustainability disclosures and one on climate change disclosures. It is a really big event um, because the fact that the you know the ISSB has done this means it's very likely to be adopted uh, at country levels alongside you know the standard the standard obligations for financial disclosures and we've never seen so much engagement from chief financial officers finance teams uh, and sustainability teams at a country level seeking to understand what they would need to do to be able to evolve their reporting to meet those standards you know they aren't mandated globally but we do expect countries to um, you know include the ISSB standards as part of their their national mandates for disclosures so it's it's heading in the right direction um, I would make a comment though Fogel if it's okay I mean you talked about time right and we, we keep coming back to this piece you know do we have enough time on average it takes something like eight or nine years at the moment for a financial accounting standard to go from concept to implementation we don't have that long for sustainability we can't wait a decade from people sitting around a table and you know pontificating on the importance of an issue to organizations disclosing because you know to your earlier point there's then a lag on action anyway um so we're going to have to get much faster at that great yeah well that's a kind of progress we, we like to see now we're coming up to cop 28 and i'm just wondering are there a few themes um maybe trends that you think worth noting sure so uh, you mentioned cop 28 uh, December in the UAE, we will have COP28. And the big news from COP28 is that it'll be the first global stock take. And what that is really is an assessment of, uh, you know, country by country, how they're doing against their commitments, their social, their so-called, you know, nationally determined contributions. Um, and we know in many cases that they are off track. 
But the important part of the stock take is that it will also then leads to, you know, support around the plan necessary to get them back on track. You know, so what are the things that would need to be true for them to be able to reduce their emissions back back on track to the commitments to, you know, for, for us all to be on a two degree trajectory um, and the adaptation measures as well that might need to be put in place to safeguard people, uh, you know, living in those countries. And that's a big deal, actually, for com- for companies because they're going to understand for the countries that they operate in what you know potential likely policy environment might be out in front of them, particularly for those countries that are lagging behind the uh, commitments that they've made in front of those other you know other 190 or so countries. Um, so, so that's a that's a big trend, and I think at the end of this year we're going to see something eventuate from that. Um, we're going to see more people at COP this year, potentially twice as many people than we've ever seen before, uh, and that's largely because I think there's a sense from the business community that they need to play a more meaningful role, from capital markets that they need to be able to find ways to finance this transition, and governments that uh, that they can't go it alone. So, so I'm hopeful. That the COP process is going to help to drive some of those. Other trends, though, uh, the big one at the moment is is really the appreciation for the value of nature and biodiversity, and the need for us to start to think about how we incorporate that much in the same way as we have with climate risk more broadly. Um, so the TNFD, the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, was officially launched in September during Climate Week in New York. Um, and that's the first big step that says, uh, you know, we need to try and start to measure how the impacts on certain biospheres are going to fundamentally impact on uh, organizational value. Because many business models are either reliant upon nature uh, or they impact upon it or both. Um, and so, so that's probably going to be, I think, one of the largest things that we focus on. And then the, the, the other thing which is waiting in the wings is really a better appreciation for how an organization impacts through its supply chain. Now, one of those things is human rights. Um, we're going to see the implementation of European legislation uh, called the CS3D, which will require due diligence um, around supply chain uh, supply chain of organizations to understand whether they're impacting on the environment or on human rights and i think very few organizations have an understanding of how they are negatively impacting on human rights and in many cases leading leading to forms of modern slavery um, we have more people in human servitude today than we have ever had in our human history um, you know, according to um, to the Walk Free Foundation, uh, I think 48 or 49 million people that they predict are in current forms of modern slavery globally, uh, and 17 million of which are within corporate environments. So, so that's a, that's going to be a big realization, particularly for organisations that operate significantly within Europe. Um, and similarly, you know, legislation around deforestation is going to have a big deal as well. So organizations will need to be able to demonstrate that they haven't contributed to deforestation for the products that they sell into Europe as well, which will lead to a number of companies operating outside Europe to better understand, you know, where they draw their natural resources from. So some trends there. Yeah, and it does seem that there is uh, increased regulatory initiatives in many jurisdictions. What about the enforcement side of things? Uh, It can be patchy um, with the best will in the world. Have you any reflections on what what needs to happen there? Because clearly in some cases there's there's poor levels of enforcement and therefore the legislation in itself um, isn't so effective. Yeah, I mean, enforcement, we've obviously found hard at the UN level. I mean, I think that's probably uh, well understood and appreciated. And, and, and so that's always going to be a challenge for UN agreements at the country level. Um, but enforcement at the, you know, the multinational like the European level or even the country level is, is much more robust. You know, for example, serious breaches uh, associated with the due diligence legislation that I talked about can have a consequence of fines up to 5% of annual turnover of the companies. So, I mean, that could be a significant fine associated with organizations that, you know, um, are not doing the right thing in the context of how they're managing human rights and environmental risks in their supply chain. So... Responsibility, making directors responsible. 
Yeah, I mean, um, we, we touched on this really briefly, Fogel, but in some countries, um, legal opinions have been issued that have said that board members do have uh, a direct you know, responsibility under their own fiduciary duties to ensure that um, they are, you know, actively engaging with the impacts of climate-related risks on their operations and strategy, you know, in, in order to meet their duty of care. Yeah, yeah. It's a very interesting discussion. And I suppose we're always trying to balance, as you say, these different time frames. What is a realistic time frame for action? And, you know, given the urgency, which can often crowd out kinds of considerations that are normal to think about time for change and so forth. But you're generally optimistic that the direction is the right one and that many companies are making this commitment in a reasonable time frame, but that we need to actually, you know, ob- obviously tighten things. Are, are there a couple of things that you think maybe in, that you would focus on? Well, I'm a natural optimist, Fergal, but it, it, you definitely uh, have periods in, you know, in yours and my uh, profession when you start to question you know how how able we are to make some of these really big changes um i would love to see some key markers though that to me would indicate we're seeing real progress you know when will we see a chief sustainability officer become a ceo you know would again when we survey chief financial officers 45% of them tell us that they expect to become ceos I'm, I, we haven't done the work, but I'm pretty sure if you asked, you know, the same number of CSOs, very few, if any, would expect that they're going to become CEOs. And so we, we aren't seeing at the top level yet, other than, you know, those those sparse examples where we have real bastions for sustainability in the CEO seat already. You know, we aren't seeing some of those markers yet. Um, so, so, you know, I'm, I'm not filled with glorious optimism. But having said that, we have to get this right. I mean, there there is no there is no Plan B, right? <laughs> There's we are reliant on the resources we have around us. There is an increasing appreciation that the deterioration of those natural resources will have profound impacts, not just to us but future generations. And um, yeah, uh, and we have all of the tools in our tool belt to fix it. So I remain optimistic, but uh, not without a push. I think I know what you're going to say here, but you think the modern corporation is fit for purpose when it comes to sustainability? I mean, we've seen growth in, in, in B Corps and benefit corporations so forth, which operate on a rather different model. Do you think that, that the structure, including the legislative structure, is, is fit for purpose? I guess the final question. I think I know what you're going to say. but I, I, I don't know if you will. I mean, I think it's it's a really interesting question. Um, you know, B Corps were established because, at least in the US, for many states, in fact, most of them, there was a, a legislative prohibition from those companies making investments that they thought were meaningful. But to, you know, to your earlier question, Fergal, um, you know, didn't, would, didn't meet the, uh, the, the hurdle test of demonstrating that they create immediate financial returns to the business. Um, and, and that, that was a, meaningful step establishing b corps um, you know there are other business models sort of shared economy business models where increasing number of organizations come together and pool their you know their profitability so that it isn't only one company but uh, you know I, I i don't see that becoming something mainstream at a global level um, and so the question is are our current capital markets the best model to drive action on sustainability um, no, I don't think they are. Um, but are we also going to move? Are we, you know, are we going to move away from those capital models in time to address those same risks? No, we're not. And so we definitely have to be able to find better ways of utilising our structure. You talked about COP twenty eight, and I guess increased presence of, of corporate voices and so forth. Um, what about lobbyists? You know, um, what what can be done? I mean, I think in COP twenty seven there were. I don't, 600, 700 fossil fuel lobbyists, I think more than any other uh, community. Uh, there are, are cl- clearly issues around COP28. 20, uh, it, it's a connection with the fossil fuel industry. But, but in, in general, um, lobbyists do play a significant role, don't they, in many economies and certainly in the US. And we see, you know, some perverse goings on, as it were. Um, is there anything that can be done about that? Yeah, it's a challenging question, that one. Um, I mean, I, I tend to agree. Obviously, you, you, you would never want, f- 
for an industry group to influence so deeply policies at a national or an international level um, that the the unintended consequences of those lobbying, you know, is the security of the future uh, for our children and their children. Um, and it, you know, in my <laughs> in my nighttime sweats, I do worry that that's a potential outcome of, of what we've been seeing at a global level. Um, you know, the same is true for subsidies that we have around certain industry sectors for um, incentives that are pri- provided to others. I mean, I would always hope that policy is based on evidence, you know, that we have evidence-based policy making. And if we had that, of course, um, uh, lobbying is therefore about helping to provide better evidence to policymakers, which would be a positive thing. Uh, but yes, there is obvious risks associated with some of the ways in which they operate today at a global level. But unfortunately, Virgo, I don't have all the answers to what we do about it. Well, well you, a very wide-ranging conversation. I do appreciate your uh, openness and willingness to discuss uh, some of the co- complicated and involved topics. And I just wonder maybe to end the, the interview, what makes you optimistic in general? We talked at the beginning about some of the things that keep you awake and that worry you. What makes you optimistic when you look at at, at, at the, the picture? Can can I be a bit parochial? <laughs> so, please, please, yes. Um, our practice in EY is the fastest growing part of our firm, and at no point has our team ever changed its moral compass. Um, or its ethical stance on how it engages with organizations. We are brutally honest. We hold a mirror to organizations where they're doing the wrong thing. And we try and pragmatically find ways to be able to support them to change. Um, and yet, we continue to be you know, the most in-demand part of the firm. And that fills me with hope. <laughs> because um, you know, I think if we were not growing at the rate that we were, if we weren't such an attractive team for young people out of university to want to come and join because they want meaningful engagement, you know, and purposeful work, then I would I would be less optimistic. But that is actually what, you know, gets me back to the computer each morning. Well, I wish you the very best with your ongoing work, Matthew. And thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Virgo. Appreciate it. The Irish anti-war movement is a membership-based, grassroots organisation which campaigns for the non-militarist and peaceful resolution of conflict. It partners with like-minded groups internationally like Stop the War Coalition in the UK and Code Pink in the US and with friendly local groups, the Peace and Neutrality Alliance and the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Recently, the Irish anti-war movement has been active in organising protests focused on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and NATO's role leading up to it, and Israel's ongoing barbarous military assaults on the densely populated Gaza Strip. The Irish anti-war movement is also engaged in an ongoing campaign to defend Ireland's neutrality from Irish government plans to sign Ireland up to NATO. Please support the Irish anti-war movement by going to irishantiwar.org, where you can subscribe, join and or make a donation. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.